Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Other Identity, Checkpoint XP's premier talk show about comic books and superheroes. I'm, of course, the great Landis, Robbie Landis, and along with me, as always, Ben Morris, a.k.a. Professor Awesome. How's it going, Ben? Are we the premier comic book podcast we are. on Checkpoint, or are we the, yeah. only, or are we the only comic book those, podcast on Checkpoint? Those two things are not mutually They're not mutually exclusive, exclusive. <laughs> yes. We are the only and the premier. I'm doing great, man. Good to talk to you, and I'm so excited about the episode we have coming up today. Oh, we have an amazing show for you guys today. We're not going to make you wait long to get into the rest of the show. We have uh, uh, some very, very special guests today that everyone that I've told about so far has been so Freaking thrilled, out. so excited, yep. and so jealous about it yep. uh, but there are a few things that i do want to remind our listeners of before we jump into that the first is is that uh callie uh former host of the show uh actually just put out a great article over at checkpointxp.com where uh she ranked all of the batman movies um now i I'm, I'm, now mm. <laughs> i know now before you go and check it out i i believe that the thinking was uh that 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 she she rated them based on how well she thought the Batman in those Batman movies did, not necessarily how how good they were as a movie overall, right? right? There's so a distinction between Batman movies versus best movies. Correct, correct. There we go. And uh, also, uh, Kevin Kelly, who we had on the show last week, uh, oh, no, no, sorry, two weeks ago, uh, has been writing all sorts of awesome articles for us. Uh, he wrote uh, a great article about the Snyder Cut for last week's episode. And if you haven't already, go and check that out. But uh, there should be an article up there as well uh, about the death of Superman from the animated universe as well. So definitely go and give those a check. Uh, now, before we jump in to this interview with these amazing guests uh, i want to know if you have you been reading anything recently that's really kind of jumped out of you i know you have so many uh, challenges yourself going on you right know now. you know what jumped out of me this past week is i had been waiting for a long time my old buddy matthew rosenberg who's a marvel writer uh did a series called annihilation scourge which is a follow-up to annihilation which is a book that came out when i was still at marvel and it's this cosmic thing starring Nova, my favorite character, and a bunch of other people. And I, I just wanted to shine a spotlight both on how cool it is to read Matt's take on that story and also how simultaneously depressing it is that I'm now <laughs> old enough that enough time has passed that he's basically doing like, hey, I'm nostalgic for this story from 2007. And I'm like, oh, oh, so old. But yeah, that was wow. it. Yeah, two years after I graduated. Uh, so for me, I've started to actually pick back up on uh, Rebirth. I kind of, you know, was, was slowing down on it a little bit. Um, but I think I hit a great stride in the reading list where there's some really, r- really awesome stuff. Uh, Batgirl stuff, Supergirl stuff. Uh, I just got through a, a issue of Trinity where Rachel Ghoul, uh, Cersei, and Lex Luthor seem to be teaming up in some way. And like the idea of like this evil the Trinity, evil Trinity. Going up yeah. against, you know, Supes, Wonder Woman, and Batman. Like, I'm so, so hyped for that. Uh, Superman Reborn, I'd, I'd actually read pieces of that through the action comics and the uh, the Superman comics back the first time I tried to go through Rebirth but there were parts of um, I think Supergirl Trinity and there might have been one other one that I didn't uh, Superwoman that I didn't read that kind of filled in a lot of the blanks and just that whole arc was absolutely amazing and 
I know it's going to be a few years before you get to it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm really my kid will be really, in college before I get to it. Uh, I, I might have to make you read that a little bit sooner because uh, that particular arc I think is going to be particularly powerful for you. Hey, shout um, out also to uh, Sterling Gates, who you and I were interacting with on Twitter, yes. uh, mm-hmm. who wrote some of the tie-in issues that we read for our Blackest Night reread, um, but also is he was the writer on Supergirl pre New Fifty Two, and I believe currently works on the Supergirl. Uh, CW show, so it's cool oh, for him. Excellent. To get, cool for him to get involved in our Supergirl discussion and maybe, yeah. Uh, there's maybe been a, a lot of really, guests. there's been a lot of re- really great Supergirl, Batgirl stuff specifically that I've been reading for recently. They are such a power duo. I can't re- wait to read more about them. But without further ado, we're gonna get in to our interview with two amazing guests here on the other identity. So stick around. Hey, what's up? I'm Robbie from Checkpoint XP. And I'm Jake from the Overwatch League casting team. And together, we're your hosts of the Owl's Nest. With the Overwatch League up and running again, we'll be bringing you all the latest from the League and within Overwatch. But it's important that we all do our part to flatten the curve by staying home during the COVID-19 outbreak. So stay home. Stay healthy. And we'll see you every Friday night on the Owl's Nest before the Overwatch League weekend. Check it out at the Checkpoint XP YouTube channel or at CheckpointXP.com. Students are playing more video games than ever, and that's not a bad thing anymore. With Checkpoint XP on campus, you can peek into the world of college, esports, and gaming. We talk to personalities in the space like Phasix, who retired from the Overwatch League to join a college team, or thought leaders like James O'Hagan of the Academy of Esports, who's leading the charge on blending education and video games. It's not all black holes and floss dances. Games can lead to college scholarships, and we can tell you where on Checkpoint XP on campus. Ladies and gentlemen, to the other identity, we have a pair of very special guests with us today. A writer, producer, powerhouse duo with over 500 credits across a dozen animated series. Erica and Julie Leewald were two of the premier creative focuses uh, forces behind shows like Darkwing Duck, Street Fighter, and most relevant to our interests today, the legendary X-Men, the animated series. They've authored two books covering their time on that project, previously on X-Men, the making of an animated series, and coming up soon, X-Men. X-Men, the art and making of the animated series, which will be out on October 20th later this year. Erica and Julia, welcome to The Other Identity. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're thrilled to be here. Uh, we're thrilled It's an absolute, yeah, it's an honor. Robbie and I are literally tripping over each other <laughs> to try to thank you guys for coming on the show. This is, this is so big. And I got to say, Robbie, you know that uh, earlier in the week, I told our good buddy Norris that we would be doing this interview. I know mm-hmm. he's talked to you about it because I see that he submitted a question. <laughs> he, he was jealous beyond belief. Uh-huh. This is huge for us. And thank you guys for well, coming. I, I, we- I feel like nine, at a time, nine times out of ten when you ask someone how they got into comics or where their entry point into superheroes was, it's X-Men the Animated Series. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to jump in here with that and, and, and agree because uh, <laughs> if we go back in time... Uh, to 19 to the early 1990s with X-Men coming out officially uh, October 31st 92 for a sneak peek mm-hmm. the comic book world was there there was a rabid audience but it was not as big as people sort of remember it being maybe a, a tenth the size of the TV audience and it was it's astounding to think about now but there really hadn't been a Marvel movie there been the, 
attempts at some Marvel TV shows, but we were told by the executives, Fox executives, who really wanted the show to be successful, said, guys, you got to understand, 85% of our audience on television aren't going to know who the X-Men are, which is stunning to mm-hmm. think about these days. But yeah. there's no internet, there's no way to no internet. get the word out. No and Google. the comic book, you know, the world of comic books is a certain size. And so uh, it made sense that if, you know, amazingly half the TVs that were on a lot of Saturday mornings were watching X-Men, the animated series, that that was an introduction for an awful lot of people to the world of comic books. So why don't we start then, you know, with with the origin of the show? Exactly how did X-Men, the animated series, come to be? I just want to, again, going way back in time, (laughs) uh, back in the early 90s, uh, television, you only got it one way, and that was on a TV screen. Uh, computers were just sort of entering people's mm-hmm. homes. But if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to watch it on TV. And and there ABC, were, NBC, CBS. Those were the three. three big networks that covered the entire country, and you had your local syndication channels, uh, If you, depending on where you lived. Fox and Fox Kids wanted to enter that market and become a big player. They wanted to become a network, and here we are, and they are now. But they weren't back then. So a scrappy little bunch of folks trying to create an empire. Uh, Gave opening for the X-Men. The reason that that was an opening for X-Men, believe it or not, uh, there are people that really wanted to, believed in getting the X-Men on as an animated show. And the main one was Margaret Les. She worked at at Hanna-Barbera, at other places where she run a lot of hit shows. But then she worked for five or six years at Marvel Productions, and early on, early like in the early '80s, she discovered through Stan Lee. She discovered the X Men comics and thought this would be a perfect show. She started going to the networks. And back in those days, in the '80s, the way you got a show on the air was once a year, you and twenty other little production companies would go pitch ideas for story for for shows to the three networks. And there were there was like a lady in charge of each one in their children's division. In their children's division, and you know CBS would buy ten half hours, ABC would buy 10 and a half hours, and the other one would buy 10, you know, 10 and a half hours. And this was specifically for Saturday morning, because that was yeah, a very specific Yeah, because that, that was prime time. Other stuff would kind of show up in the afternoons or on weekends, but but really, really the, the heart and soul of all the new programming was Saturday mornings for kids. And for six or seven years, she would take the X-Men to these the networks, and they'd just roll their eyes and shake their heads and say, oh, no, there's, there's not a big enough audience for that comic book stuff marvel stuff that never works it's too interior it's thought bubbles it's you know pimply guys in their basement with a comic oh that's ridiculous it's it's (laughs) not it's not our audience of you know six to eleven year olds who who we're trying to sell cereal to so all those years she was just knocking her head against the wall couldn't get it done even like kind of on, on the slide borrowed $300,000 from Robocop show in 87 and produced Pride of the X-Men as a sales tool. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, this little one-off uh, where she got some really good artists to and some really good animation and said, look, look how beautiful this is. And everybody just went, eh. You know, it maybe oh. played once or twice, yeah. uh, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. Never went anywhere. She, you know, she was doors are still shut she finally gets hired as the first uh president of fox kids Tun-tun. and so she said okay my priorities are going to be x-men batman spider-man uh silver surfer fantastic four iron man you know i'm going to prove that all these people were wrong 
but even her boss looked at the X-Men and said, man, this is weird, dark stuff going on here. These are some ferocious comic books. This doesn't fit for our kids. And Margaret pushed it and said, look, I believe this could be the best animated show on television. I'll stake my, my job on it. And her boss really asked that, look, if this doesn't go, you know, I'm, I'm going to find somebody else for next fall. Wow. Ooh. And she put all her money on the line to get it on. She had a, a, an assistant. Everything fell in place. She had an assistant who's a crazed nine-year-old boy at heart named Sidney Iwaner, <laughs> who supervised all those action shows that we talked about. Every word of those shows went through his computer at one point or another. They were our bosses. And luckily, we I had done a... A season of Beetlejuice for Sydney and, and Margaret early, you know, a year and a half earlier. And so when time came in February 92 to pick somebody to run X-Men, they just, I guess, instinctively th- I thought I was the right tool for the job. I didn't know the books. I literally, the night before, I'm supposed to pitch my vision of this world to Stan Lee and um, <laughs> in a, a room full of production people and people are putting money into this. I, you know, I'm told I've got the job, and I said, "Well, that's a that's a comic book, right?" Yeah, and there's you know? no there's no internet, there's no Google. yeah, right. There, it's Sunday night, so there's yeah. no comic book stores open. You know, my my friends are asleep, yeah, <laughs> so, so I just had to nod and smile and play pretty for that first meeting, and then we jumped in and you know learned them all real fast. Oh, another thing, though, uh, there was so little confidence from other folks in the show. Eric, you were hired, and and, and I'm a writer on the show, and uh, each of the writers, 13 episodes, assume, and they only did, they only hired all of us for one season, for 13 episodes. The entire creative, all the artists, all the writers, all the creative production people, it was, as soon as we were done with getting setting up the first 13, we were all let go. Oh, and, no. uh, you know, like three months later, the show comes on in January, and it's this immense number one hit, and they had to frantically try to get us all back, and they got most of us, but three or four of us were committed to other stuff. But uh, and, and here, as, as a lowly writer on this, this sticks in my craw, and it's 30 years later, so hey. <laughs> but when, when, the, when you figure, hey, it's a number one, it was a number one hit on Fox, it made a huge impact when it came out, and it's like, oh, they're going to do a second season. Oh, yay! You know, back up the money trucks, boys. <laughs> and instead... It's that Haim Saban was in charge of the money for the for the script. Somehow was split. Another, a better company was in charge of um, money for the artists, so they did fine. But Haim <laughs> thought, well, hell, new contract. I'll pay the writers $500 less. Oh, it's like, wait, what? God. $500 we just, we just, less? Per script. And I just, we just, we just got you a number one hit. And he said, well, yes, that means that every writer in town is going to want to be on it, so... So, you know, take it or walk. Take it or walk. That's <laughs> terrible. Somebody else. Yeah. That, but the point is, of course, everybody still wanted to write on it. We all, of course. We all were thrilled to and grateful for the opportunity. But that was that was our Hollywood <laughs> le- leverage moment when, yeah. after the show hit. It's so funny to hear that story because I feel like so many TV shows that really hit have that story behind them. Like what you guys are saying with Margaret, where there's that one executive who just champions the show and just kind of pushes it through on sheer force of will in a lot of ways. I feel like that happens more often than uh, than people realize. Oh, it really does. Mm-hmm. Because nobody knows what's going to work. They really don't. If they did, they'd make a billion dollars. That's a famous uh, screenwriter, <laughs> William Oldman's famous line, nobody in Hollywood knows anything. And it's true. <laughs> and, and they really don't. I mean, 
if if you could really knew it was going to be popular because you, then you can't often can't duplicate it mm-hmm. even if you find something if the magic happens like on this show julie and i worked on 40 some shows each and thought we did our as good a work as we could on all of them and yet only once in a while do they all come together like this and I'm almost never like this and it's just it, you can't you can't plan for it, it uh, it's 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 a, it's a weird magical thing so all right you guys got the show you know the first season like you said it was a hit you got hired back on can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what working on the show you know from day to day or week to week was like any moment or or a story that really stands out to you that sort of defines that period of time a lot of it happened around our dining room table. <laughs> <laughs> and no plush offices for everybody. Uh, and, and again, the situation was there, there There was no writer's room office or anything. So, yeah, Eric and, and your buddy yep. um, Mark, Mark, Edens, Mark Edens. Laid out the first two seasons. Uh, uh, first, you know, The first one and then the second one when we got called for that. Um, we were friends from college from, from Tennessee, and so he was... Uh, first, the first writer I picked, and he was, he he could have been the co-showrunner on it at first, and then then we asked, well, is there money in the budget for two? He said, no, you can split it. And Mark said, hell no, and I'll just get writing fees. So, <laughs> so, but he was he was invested from the beginning to to set, you know, to most most of the series seasons he was there helping lay it out with me, um, and. It was, as Julie said, there's, in some of these things, there's a writing room where you've got network executives and you've got a dozen writers and and you kind of mold, everybody throws a two cents worth in and it, it gets rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. That was absolutely not what happened. I mean, as I said, we have friends that write for The Simpsons and they say they, they can write an episode and there's not a word of what they wrote in the episode. Ours is completely different. Uh-huh. The network just looked to me and said, Eric, you and Mark, figure out what the 13 stories are, pitch them to us, pitch them to Marvel, pitch them to the production people so they know that you're not writing something way too expensive for them to produce. Get everybody's notes together, hire the writers you want to have write it, and hand out the script assignments. And then, in effect, each of the 13 is just like a writer at his desk writing a movie. And I'll, you know, I'll check the premise that he writes up, I'll, or she writes up. I'll check the outline stage. I'll check at each draft of the script stage, and shepherd it through all the, you know, the the censor notes or uh, network notes or Marvel notes, saying, you know, that isn't the way Wolverine would act, whatever, and get the script through. But basically the person whose name is on there, the only two people that wrote for that episode were that the writer and me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it just becomes our movie A and our movie B and our movie C. And none of, I mean, there's some advantages to writer's rooms. You get all sorts of inspiration, but I really loved this one-on-one business to where I was just focusing on it. You say, if it was an episode Julia wrote, how can I make, you know, this Julia's best movie and just you know her voice and 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 make it stay what it is and in that way it's an odd thing with animation on television uh the kind that we do uh uh, the kind of middle budget kind there's not enough time there's not enough money to rethink things 11 times so we write it the artists draw it as fast as they can they toss it to the to the cast, they record it. You know that morning in, in Toronto. In Toronto, it gets sent overseas. Everybody draws it as fast as they can. It comes back, 
and literally it's 95, 98% of what we had on paper when we started. And that's very gratifying. I'll just put that in there as a writer to, to be able to, to, to sort of ha- claim authorship and, and, and have it be something you actually author. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously this was a, like you guys said, this was the number one Saturday morning hit and you knew that it was commercially successful. But I guess the last question we want to ask before we uh, transition into our, our next round of questions is when did you get the sense that this was something, this wasn't just a hit, this was something special. This was something that was going to impact an entire generation of comic book fans. I, I think- when was that evident? <laughs> Julia had that moment at, at, at Fox. Uh, if, if you're old enough, there was a thing called uh, uh, the, the Fox Kids Club. That yeah, young okay, absolutely. So, uh, one day, I, I had reason to go into the Fox Net, Fox Kids Studio Network um, here in Los Angeles, and a gal was working as an executive there named Charlotte Fullerton, who is, is now you know, her own um, highly successful animation writer. And I just, you know, because we're at home, you know, the internet's not alive yet. We're not getting updates or reports about anything. No you feedback. Know, no feedback. So uh, what's, are you getting any news on how, how's X-Men being received, you know? And she said, well, come with me and I'll show you. So if you guys have seen those sort of milky white plastic boxes that- uh, With handles on them. That the postal carriers yeah. use. Uh, yeah, of okay. course, yeah. They'll hold like- four or five hundred letters stuffed together. So she takes me out into the hallway and there's one of those containers and it's stacked up to the ceiling and they're all full. And then it goes down the hall, comes up the next wall and comes back and every one of those containers to the ceiling side by side. And she said, every one of these is for X-Men. These are kids who've written in because they love X-Men. It's like, I had never seen it quantified that way. But this is when kids had to get a stamp and an envelope. (laughs) (laughs) That mattered, man, that mattered. Absolutely. But that was like suddenly, okay, this this may have touched something that I had not really appreciated until that moment. And it's such a great story, guys. All right, we're going to come back to you in just a minute. We're going to do what we like to call the lightning round here on The Other Identity. Uh, and it's all going to be, of course, still X-Men animated series related for both Eric and Julia. So stay tuned. The Other Identity will be right back. Hey, what's up? It's James. And Robbie. Hey, and it's Weird Beard. And we're bringing you a brand new radio show called Checkpoint XP. You don't have to be an expert, even though I am. And we're here to give you everything you need to know about the world of video games. Interviews from the biggest professionals and your everyday gamers. We've got you covered at Checkpoint XP. Whether you're a professional player or somebody who hasn't played in a while, we have something for everybody. Hang out with us at Checkpoint XP every single week on your radio. Find out where we're playing in your hometown at our website, CheckpointXP.com. So if you're looking to have some fun and talk about video games, we got the rundowns for things that matter to you. Checkpoint XP. Your home for esports and gaming. You got it that time. Yes. (laughs) Nailed it. For the latest in Overwatch League action, check out The Owl's Nest with me, Robbie Landis, and my co-host, Jake Lyon. For new episodes every Friday at CheckpointXP.com or download from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. (laughs) 
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for sticking around on The Other Identity. We are joined today by the creators of the X-Men, the animated series, Eric and Julia Leewald. Uh, you guys have been great so far. These have been amazing, amazing stories. Uh, but we're going to do a little bit, uh, something a little bit different here. We're going to throw some, uh, some, some questions at you, a little bit of a lightning round. Now, feel free to take as much time to answer them as you want from both of you. Uh, and we're going to go ahead and uh, I'm actually going to let Ben start. I think I started last time with Kelly Thompson. So, uh, Ben, this first one's all yours. And I am going to, right off the bat, give you guys the hardest question. So uh, so we just throw you in the deep end here. Picking that favorite child, who was your favorite main cast member on X-Men the Animated Series? Beast! <laughs> <laughs> so not so hard then. What, was I supposed to wait on that one? Was that was on that? Uh, no, part of it is uh, Beast being the, the smartest guy in the room, in this room full of extraordinary people. And the damaged poet, romantic soul, and it, it, basically every writer wanted to uh, imagine uh, that, that he or she was as smart as Beast. And so, you know, uh, writing for him was was hugely gratifying. And Eric made it fun in the pilot episode, the, the two-parter, where uh, uh, there is a call to action for Beast as as they're breaking into the the Sentinel fi- the the file the place that's maintaining the files, and he. Uh, a minor poet for a minor obstacle. Uh, that <laughs> and that was you looking something up in, in, in Bartlett's. Dust the old Roger's. Bartlett's, Bartlett's, yeah. Bartlett's quotation book. Because again, no internet. And then it became kind of a thing among the writers. You know, can you come up with the, 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 the correct but obscure quote that Beast would be able to pull out of thin air in an episode? And that was kind of like part of a fun game for us. Okay, who's the most obscure? Yeah. Who's the most accurate? With- Without the internet, I don't. I couldn't. I never. That's Out that's that's man. That's something else. Yeah, yeah. In, in my case, uh, you, you know, every, everybody loved Wolverine. We had to try to not to, to to hold back because he was so easy to write for. They're we. They were all favorite children. You're right. We tried mm-hmm. to get each three or four episodes at least that they starred in. So it wasn't Wolverine and the X Men. It was this whole group and that they they lived and fought and struggled as equals but being the showrunner and having over five years 20 different people write for the show i felt kind of like xavier uh, (laughs) as as the the father holding this contentious group of uh, very different people together and trying to make a, a single thing out of it so i had great empathy for him all right so my question uh did did you guys even really like Bishop? I feel like whenever he came on the show, he was more of an annoyance than, than any of the other characters really were. I feel like he really got the short end of the stick. Oh, man, my Bishop! <laughs> I, I got uh, Days of Future Past Part 1, which was basically his, his, you know, his introduction. It's it, challenging, though, because he's a time traveler, and perhaps what you're picking up on is that when, when he shows up, uh, hell's breaking loose because... <laughs> travel through time it's not you know it's not like he just happened to arrive for coffee uh so but yeah you're right he, he tend, I mean, we tended to put him in a lot of angry scenes and and i'm not sure that's that's his fault um it's interesting look back i didn't realize we put him in 10 he's this guy from another time and mm-hmm. we actually put him in 10 of the episodes so we must have liked something about him and we thought of him as this kind of alien guest, I guess. So we'd never thought of him as getting close to the rest of the X-Men. We got to know, you know, vulnerable personal sides to all the X-Men. And we never did with him. He was always rushing in the middle of a crisis and frantically struggling. And I guess 
trying to tell people that it wasn't the way it looked and arguing and and, and forcing them to see what was going on. So, yeah, I think he had, you know, you know, maybe he just had a more difficult difficult life than some of the other characters. Yeah, when you put it that way. And, and <laughs> Not intentionally. Sense, yeah. yeah. So somewhat related, because uh, the answer here might be Bishop or it might be someone else. Who is you guys' favorite guest star character so not a member of the regular cast but someone you would you would bring in for certain episodes oh well well, i i was a huge fan of the episode nightcrawler uh, Mm. written by len uley classic Um, and again folks look it's 1990 92 93 94 95 i don't i honestly don't know how if you could tell that same story today uh Mm. on broadcast tv just because it's not it's, it's not a call to conversion to Christianity. It is a legitimate examination of the idea of religion and how and faith and how that can affect one person or another, uh, which, again, when, when that story was first presented as a possibility, I'm going, oh, good luck getting this past <laughs> everybody in charge. But everybody in charge was saying, no, no, push this. You know, be, be, make the discussion, make it's the debate. No other show we worked on would ever have tried it. And we it, we had to be very careful and delicate with the way we, we portrayed religion because you, know, you can imagine the millions of, of, of angry letters if we'd done a sloppy job. So again, credit to the, to the wonderful censor, uh, 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 Avery Coburn, the wonderful broadcast standards lady that allowed us to do that and allowed us to kill Morph and allowed us to... <laughs> <laughs> a number of things. I mean, yeah, it was the first. It was our first big discussion with the network after Mark and I sat down and said, "Well, there needs to be something at stake uh, for the X Men. Can't be pretending to do this. They're all like in their late twenties and early thirties, and the, the world's at stake. The violence uh, needs to be real, and the consequences need to be real. So we need to kill somebody in the first story. We not not yeah. just kill somebody. We need to kill an accident, so yeah. we know that that there's a tragic loss to being a hero. And it took her a few days to kind of digest it, but she backed us up, and all the executives backed us up, and that was that was you know important deal. Anyway, back okay. to favorites. I'd say Nightcrawler. I just find his uh, character very interesting. Um, Apocalypse. Oh my God! Okay. Ooh, yes. 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 That's voice. <laughs> Sorry, right. Eric's right. Good lord. So, talk about somebody fun to write for. Now, when uh, so when Disney Plus, you know, uh, came out, and obviously this was the first thing that me and my girlfriend binged through. I had actually completely forgotten about Captain Marvel's appearance uh, in relation to Rogue. So I was wondering, were there any other Marvel heroes that you would have liked to have cameoed in this series? That was a weird thing. Okay, so. Uh, thanks to uh, producer director Larry Houston, there are a lot of cameos that show yeah, there up. sure are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, either either just like silently in the background or as part of the the, the series, and we did that as much as we could. But you got to remember that uh, as we're deciding what stories to tell and coming up with new ones, I and neither I or, or Mark Evans who helped me with like seventy percent of of laying out the stories neither one of us were fans before we started so we didn't have oh you know oh episode you know with you know uncanny x-men 118 oh my god i gotta do that one and we gotta show so and so uh we learned these characters as you know possible particip- participants in the stories we were creating you know on the run 
And so there wasn't really, we did, there were writers that, writers and artists, people like Larry, that really had serious agendas. I mean, Bob Skier, who pushed the rogue, that rogue story, just dying to tell, you know, the rogue story, Ms. Marvel, did all that. And there were other writers that were dying. I think one people, one group really wanted to do the uh, Asteroid M story. So there were people among the group that had uh, ambitions, but we just, not us. But but also, you know, it's funny, you can look back and say, oh yeah, when, when the X-Men appeared on, on Spider-Man, uh, people really have great fondness for those crossovers. We weren't allowed. Eric, you were just not, we were, X-Men the Animated Series was not allowed to have Spider-Man on. Yeah, but Marvel was very short-sighted. <laughs> either, either they were protective of who they could have on the show because maybe saving them for another show or they sold the they were so desperate ah! for money that sold the rights off of different yeah. people to different places so we weren't so 80 percent of those cameos we weren't supposed to show this oh, wow. okay. was, was fine but, but that was a specific one that was but a very if specific you look, if there are at least 20 or 30 appearances of people like spider-man's wrist and yeah I and remember Black it well. Panther mm-hmm. and the Watcher yep. and Doctor Strange shows up at least four yep. times. Yep, yeah. I remember that. If anybody, you know, we put those. Larry put those through in the storyboards as mutant number seven or <laughs> Norseman <laughs> or Norseman standing on uh, uh, roof yeah. as opposed to Thor. Because he, <laughs> he tried to put Spider-Man through once, and they said, no, we don't have the rights. Don't do it. So instead of that, it's just mutant wrist in shot, and it was Spider-Man's wrist, Amazing. and Spider-Man's shadow, and there's a web, but he doesn't call him Spider-Man, and it would get through. And so mm-hmm. we did that with all those guests. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You guys had so many classic stories on this, Eric. You just you just mentioned some of them. Um, I want to know of the kind of the, the multi-part epics. Uh, mm-hmm. the, as you guys started going, you started doing two-parters, but then even five-parters. What was your favorite, like, big story arc? What was your, what, what was your, uh, the one that really stands out to you? Well, I, I think for, for me, the, uh, uh, well, well, there are a couple. One, one was the uh, Phoenix Saga because, of course, we yeah. Just, yeah, we had just had a couple great years and Marvel was making money, had over fist with, <laughs> you know, merchandising and stuff. So they were feeling, everybody was feeling good. And instead of just committing to 13 at a time once a year, they committed to 39 to fill out an episode, 39 more episodes. So great. We've got two and a half years worth of work guaranteed to us. That was huge. And we go yeah. up. And so Larry and I and Sydney, and I want to go up to New York for a couple days and chat with them and say, well, what kind of, you know, is there anything you really need us to tell? And I've got a long list of it in our book previously. I explained, I kept the memo, but one of the things was do the Phoenix saga, do the dark Phoenix saga. And so, so that was, and, and we had time then. We thought, okay, since we're committing to 39, instead of this rush, which the first two seasons were, we had maybe a month to think these things through and, and adapt them properly. And I was able to ask, I say, look, Mark and Michael are my two top guys, along with my wife. <laughs> uh, uh, but so, look, normally when we have five episodes, even if it's a five-parter, I have to assign it to five different people because we're in such a rush. Everybody gets a, a script and we do them all at once and zap, 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 zap. But I said, can we just, can I let these two guys do the entire five-parter? 
Um, and they said yes, because we had this comfort zone. We had like a couple months before we were going to get back into the, to the speed of things. Uh-huh. And so that was a, that was a pleasure. Um, and then it, one of the fun things was, you talked about multi-parters, in the second season, they wouldn't let us have them all connected. Uh, you know, episode 14 through 26. Sequentially. We're not right. as sequential as the first season because there'd been production problems <laughs> and the network got nervous about doing things in order. And that's why we started trying to do more two and three and two large you know, individual stories that were longer. But we did that the uh, Savage Land little B story thing that connected from the first to the end of that season as something that I just wrote on the side. And wow. so, so I wrote it, I wrote it in at the end of the first two, uh, at the, the, the second uh, episode of the first of the season. And then each little 60 second bit that they're going through, I just wrote each like nine of those and then had them, had it resolved at the end. And they were able to actually produce those nine little bits first so that they would be ready and then they knew it would be connected. And that way, there was a feeling of connection in the second season, even though the stories were more one-offs. And there were times when an episode had to get bumped for production purposes and... You, the production people were able to gen, just take take from like say episode four that bit of Savage Land and plug it into episode three, and it didn't if you had to skip one or, or pull it back. It worked out beautifully. Yeah, because they they, did, they weren't really creatively the story wasn't changing for, for Xavier and Magneto, and wasn't really affecting the main story that it was part of, and so it made it flexible. All right, we got time for, I think, one more question here real quick. And if, and if I more. don't ask this one for Norris, he's going to hate us forever. So, uh, <laughs> we don't want that. Yep. We don't want that. So, co-worker of ours, Norris, wants to know, what went into the, into the decision to go with Jim Lee designs as opposed to making original designs for the show? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> the very short, long answer is a lot. Uh, again, let's go back. It's 1992, and decisions have to get made very quickly. Uh, and Marvel... Oh, and also Marvel is in New York at this mm-hmm. point. Um, so everything was being handled basically from their occasional coming out for meetings and you on the phone a great deal and, and faxes because uh, email wasn't even really all that viable at that time. But it, it was uh, Will Minio and Larry Houston with the folks at Marvel trying to figure, because you're taking what's a comic book and you're taking a book that's been around for 30 years and you're having to translate it into a completely different medium. Uh, uh, you know, in, in a week. <laughs> and, and, and so what, what basically Will and Larry and the designers sat down with Marvel and said, okay, let's look at all the artists that have come before. And obviously, you know, uh, Jack Kirby could be my favorite comic artist of all time. But, you know, they looked at it, they said, well, no, that's old fashioned looking right. moment. At the moment, what, you know, X-Men books are doing very well what can we do that's similar to what's current and feels current, but more, most importantly, is best for animation? Because there's some artists that are much more detail-intensive and harder to move. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, Larry has a, a, a story about seeing the minister sinister costume and saying, oh, damn, you know, if he just turned around <laughs> one, there goes, there goes our whole animation budget. Right. So there are various artists had various looks. I think very quickly, Jim Lee was at the time was the hot current look. Yeah. And 
and Will looked at it and said, "But and you know, by chance, they all believed that it would animate best. Mm-hmm. That a simplified, streamlined version of Jim's look would be the thing that would be easiest and most effective to animate. So, really, it, it was a very quick decision. There no. wasn't a lot of, oh my God, no, but I love so and so, and and uh, why, uh, why can't we have more of this or that? They all came, you know. Will just said. This is the way. This is the way it's got to look. Oh, no, and, oh, I, oh, and the story, the, the the final story. I hope Norris is listening. I hope Norris is listening. We got some behind the scenes. One of the here. great. There were like six or seven crises that almost sank the show the first <laughs> season before it got on the air, and one of them was we did get a phone call from Marvel after the entire show had been designed and most of the storyboards drawn, saying no, it can't be the Jim Lee style. Throw all that out. Yeah, we need something completely different. Make it up up coming from Marvel. And Will said, are you crazy? You know, know, we're already a month behind. This will make us three months behind. Uh, And this is what's right for the show. No, and he fought it and he fought it. And of course, no one was telling us then, but the reason was is that Jim Lee and the others had just left Marvel. One image. And so Marvel, this was a business decision, not a creative one, where Marvel was being pissy and saying, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we are not going to support this guy that just left us in the lurch and is now working for competitors. Wow. So that was, that's, wow. That's, a, that's a great story. Amazing. Unfortunately, so, we, we so, are at the end right here. So, <laughs> I'm so sorry. You have to hear how he won the you argument. got a minute 20 before Zoom cuts out on us. Okay. So. He, wins, he wins the argument by, he says, okay. And they said, no, they insisted. It can't be Jim Lee. So he said, okay, here's a version. And he sent in, without comment, seriously, a version of kind of Hanna-Barbera 1967-looking X-Men, Scooby-Doo with a Scooby-Doo twist to it. And everybody went crazy. Stan went crazy. The other artists that were working under Will went crazy. What's wrong? What's he doing? And it so shocked them uh, about how horrible it looked that they sucked it up and said, okay, Jim Lee's on. All right. There you go. That Mark. was worth Amazing. it. That was Amazing. worth it. Uh, Bo, Eric, and Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully this will not be the last time that you bless us with your presence on The Other Identity. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, remember to look for and pick up previously on X-Men, the making of an animated series. And coming soon in October on the 20th day of this year, uh, X-Men, the art and making of the animated series as well. Uh, again, thank you both so much for joining us here today. Thank Thank you so much. All right, that's going to be it for us today, guys. Make sure you tune in next time, same other identity time, same other identity channel. (laughs) 